Spring's dream time will like drifting clouds disperse, its flowers snatched by a flood none can reverse. Then tell each nymph and swain, tis folly to invite love's pain. Kevin here, Kevin Wilson, joined as always by William Jones. Hello. Will, how's it going? Good. Welcome everybody to a, a special episode. Um, we recently reached a milestone in um, the progress of this podcast through the novel. We, we reached the end of chapter 12. Mm-hmm. And because this novel is 120 chapters long, that means we are now one-tenth of the way through um and so to mark this milestone um and i guess to keep track of the story um mm-hmm. um i thought it would be helpful to have a a summary a recap to go back over um those first 12 chapters uh, and see where we've got to that sounds great have people been requesting this um from you from us so some of the feedback i've got from from listeners has been that um, it's sometimes hard to keep track episode to episode um, mm. of of where the story has gone, you know, and, and so maybe every now and then it would be useful to have in addition to the recap we have at the start of most episodes, it would be useful to have a, a little summary of the key plot points just to see, just to, to kind of keep track of it all. I suppose you know, some people maybe are, are reading along at home. Some people are just listening, you know, mm-hmm. now and then for fun. Um, and so hopefully this will be of, of some benefit. Um, and it also gives us a chance to kind of talk about um, what we've covered so far and, you know, favorite bits and any particular mm-hmm. elements that we want. You know, to yeah, about. I was trying to prepare for this and it's we've come a long way. Uh, at the same time, it, it seems like we, we've only just begun. Uh, this novel really is quite a project. Yeah. It's uh, especially when we deal with it at the level that we've been trying to kind of um, kind of zoom in on on a lot of the material, the references, the poems, uh, various allusions, the, the cultural and historical context. There's a lot to talk about, um, but I, I think it's been pretty worthwhile. And I I'm hoping that you know for us and for listeners that this is like a really by taking the time uh, and. And, and sort of the patience required. I, I think this novel opens up this whole kind of Chinese historical, um, like cultural arena, right? And so you, you can use this novel as a kind of jumping pad to uh, to approach uh, Tang poetry or uh, early Chinese philosophy 
or you know Qing history. I I think it this whole project is definitely worth the time, effort, attention. Yeah, it it condenses so much into it. I mean, I say condenses; it runs to five volumes in English, but um, it crams an incredible amount of of interesting um, uh, content, for want of a better word, uh, into into those 120 chapters. Um, and so, yeah, picking it apart in detail, I think, is is really interesting and worthwhile. But as you say, because we zoom in so much, mm. from time to time, we have to just step back and try to look at individual chunks of it rather than the the fine detail yeah for sure um and so this is a so we have completed 12 chapters there's it's an open question whether the author uh himself was thinking of the novel in terms of uh 12 chapter components 12 is a very natural number right uh, it's one tenth of the uh, the novel, but it's also you know twelve months in a year. It's you know it's a, a common factor in multiple. Um. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's twelve months of the year, and also I think it's the you know in the Chinese zodiac there are the twelve years, um, and so yeah, it's, I think you know it's, it's, there's a kind of symbolic significance to it as well, I suppose. But in a sense, choosing twelve chapters is is in a way arbitrary it's just a you know it could be we could do it every 10 chapters or every 20 or true whatever we might choose it's just a it seemed like a kind of natural enough so will for us uh, actually uh uh composed uh, a pretty detailed summary and so we're going to be using that as well so this is partly off the cuff and partly based on a really good summary that maybe Maybe we'll post online at some point. Yeah, sure, sure. If it's a summary, we I guess we can we can start at the beginning. Um, but I almost feel that before you even really dive into the story, it's kind of more helpful almost to lay groundwork, right? Uh, I mean, I, I think just just as a reminder for everyone, you know, that the story it centers on this one character in particular, uh, Jia Baoyu, right? Who he's a a teenage boy at the when we when we first meet him at the beginning of the novel um and he is the scion of a of a wealthy noble family uh the the novel doesn't have a like a specific historical setting but because of the time it was written and because of various other kind of clues it's pretty obvious that it's a kind of autobiographical uh or it's heavily autobiographical um and although the authorship of the novel is somewhat kind of contested, it's fairly settled at this point that it was written by uh, a man called Sal Xueqian, uh, who lived during the, the 18th century. Uh, so that's the Qing dynasty in China. Uh, so th so the, the family at the center of the, the novel is this mm. family called the, the Jia's, um, the, the Jia family. And they have, it's a, you know, there are many, many different people in China with that surname, Jia, but there are two particularly kind of illustrious branches of the family. There's the Rongwa branch and the mm -hmm. Ningguo branch. And sometimes they're just called Rong and Ning for short. Um, uh, and they they occupy these two kind of enormous uh, grand Chinese mansions, which 
are located side by side mm-hmm. um, in the the imperial capital, um, uh, and you know they're filled with kind of grand halls, lofty pavilions, elegant gardens, you know, and uh, and it's full of these. They're they're kind of maze like labyrinthine um, places, you know. It, I think people have tried to draw them out to map them out, but in my mind, they are as much kind of uh, imaginary sort of spaces um, without necessarily any internal logic as they are actual representations of, of physical spaces. Right. We, we've discussed a little bit whether this, um, what's being imagined is fully consistent, whether we, like how to approach this, even the physical space, whether it's more of like a dream space where there might be some inconsistencies here or there, or whether we should try to, as a lot of readers have um, historically and presently, uh, try to concretize um, this space using all all, all the different um, circumstantial evidence that the novel provides. Um, and yeah. so we've kind of, I, I think we've sort of mediated those two approaches. I, I definitely am less inclined toward a um, overly concrete reading, but uh, to each his own, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. You know, it's, uh, I mean, to the extent that it is autobiographical, it's drawing on memories over, over years or decades. Um, and those are, are never going to be 100% kind of trustworthy or, or accurate. Mm-hmm. And so the, the vision of reality, if it is intended to be a reality, constructed by the author is by its nature going to be somewhat kind of imperfect or untrustworthy um, and maybe some things were intentionally um, redesigned for symbolic effect like for instance the, the way the water flows in the garden the question of whether it's more or less pure water and whether that is a um, that's going to come up in later chapters whether that's a, a sort of uh like a, a hint symbolically that, uh, you know, youth and purity has been in various ways uh, befouled either by this family or by this system in which they find themselves in. So as mentioned, the, there are these two kind of illustrious branches, the the, the Rong branch and the Ning branch. Um, and they can be traced back to two brothers um, who were both made dukes by the emperor the Duke of Rongguo and the Duke of Ningguo, hence the names of the branches. These two branches of the family are traced back to these two brothers. And several generations later, when the novel is set, um, both branches still enjoy a high level of prestige. But, you know, rumor has begun to spread that um, their good fortune um, may be running out. Um, This downfall is foreshadowed at multiple points in the novel and that sometimes that's in a kind of general or oblique way in discussions of the the vicissitudes of fate and you know how how one can be uh wealthy and influential one day and the next day find oneself a, a beggar um but there are also specific references um talking about the jar clan um you know i think a lot about the uh you know whether the the issue of the collapse of the family is entirely um, autobiographical, right? I'm sure that's part of the sort of logic to it, but I do wonder sometimes if 
and maybe this goes into the psychology of like reading a novel or, or reading a novel about um, like these the extreme wealthy, extremely wealthy, the elites, whether um, there's almost like this weird moralism to the way um, a lot of readers approach novels where it's it's almost as if the downfall of the clan later in the novel uh, allows one to enjoy, enjoy some of the pleasures that occur uh, toward the beginning or in the first half or so. Um, and so I've been thinking a little bit, yeah, like whether that's kind of part of the, uh, that's kind of the, the, kind of like the libidinal economy of the novel is like uh, pleasure followed by, uh, you know, like rectitude via fate, you know. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that, like, uh, <laughs> how that affects the sort of the way different people will approach the novel in different ways. Um, at the same time, I don't want to give the impression that this is a morality tale by any means. Um, yeah. And, and in fact, you know, in the first chapter of the book, it, the author deals with this expressly, right? There's a, there's a discussion between, as we'll see, there's a discussion between the, the magical stone uh, at, the, at the kind of heart of the story and uh, and a monk and the monk says you know one of the things that's special about this uh, story uh, is that there there is no there's no moral message there's nothing to to kind of educate or uplift the reader's morality and do you think that that's true I I, I know what you mean it's not explicitly a morality tale but I still actually do see elements of a, a kind of moralistic not quite a fable, but but something like it. Yeah, I mean, maybe a little bit. Um, sometimes I wonder, actually, you know, what causes someone to write a novel? Is it purely the recording of incidents? And when you do set about writing a novel, are you are you incentivized in, in some ways toward you know um, extreme ends for your characters? You know, on, on one hand, you could see, you know. Y- you spend you invest so much time in writing the novel that you're inclined toward uh like rooting for the characters to to come to come through in the end so to speak but if you're writing a tragedy your inclinations might be uh you're you're kind of incentivized like well if it's going to be a really good you know if it's if it's going to be a serious story and it's going to have to be like hamlet and everyone's got to die at the end or you know and, and so I could see either of those tendencies um, interfering in, in some ways with the, uh, the production of of literature. At the same, if you're simply recording events, you know, it's, what's the, what's the point? You should just you get a, get a video camera out and you should record the events. You know, if you like, you know, if you're if you're painting, there's no need necessarily to be to strive for um, perfect realism. Uh, and so there's some, some of these tensions are kind of emerge. And, and I think probably the skill of the author is not to, um, not to fall too heavily in any one of these camps. Right. And it's kind of, it's, it's one way to like, uh, push back against the, the, the characterization as novel as a realist novel or as a romance or as, um, some kind or like, you know, uh, speculative fiction or what have you. There's different ways to. Yeah. I think. It's a slightly trite phrase, but it does it defies categorization in some ways. The novel, um, you're right; it has been described mm-hmm. as a realist novel, 
uh, and there are elements of the romantic about it as well but it mm-hmm. it's not reading neatly either of those things and, and indeed as we'll see it in its own way subverts some of the conventions of the the novel form as it existed in China at the time uh, so so I guess you know fr- from the beginning in the beginning of the story uh, there is the stone because you know this is um, the story of the stone we've touched on it before but the the novel actually kind of has numerous names but it's I guess best known as the dream of the red chamber right mm. you know Hong Wong Mong but it's also very commonly known as the story of the stone in English uh, mm-hmm. in, in Chinese um, and it, it has at least three other names as as we'll touch on um, and yeah so so it begins with mm-hmm. um, the stone okay so so what is the stone basically in the kind of mythical past uh, of China you have this epic battle between two gods uh, one of them is Gong Gong who's the the god of water and the other is Zhu Rong the god of fire um, in their epic battle Gong Gong the god of water destroys one of the pillars that's holding up the sky um, and this causes part of the sky to collapse um, and so having caused this mess um, it falls to the goddess Nuwa to uh, to repair the pillar uh, and to to put the sky back up where it belongs, you know, up there, not down here. Um, so to do this, she she makes uh, a number of blocks of stone, specifically thirty six thousand five hundred and one blocks to repair the pillar. Uh, and when she's built the pillar, there's one block of stone left over. So all the other thirty six thousand five hundred blocks of stone have been mm-hmm. used and there's just this one that's kind of cast aside and this leftover stone has you know numerous magical qualities uh so it can change its shape and it seems to you know it lives for many years in, in the human world but also in a in the kind of spiritual in a kind of magical realm separate from the human world um after the passage of of many ages uh, a taoist monk who's known as vanitas in the uh in the hawks translation finds the stone and reads this inscription upon it which the the inscription details the life of the stone and that story that's inscribed upon the stone is the story of this novel so the story of the stone which is the story on the stone is is the book itself and so you have this kind of confusing symbolism where there there is this magical stone who is the embodiment or representation of several different things uh, of the story itself and kind of by extension the author but also the main character um and it's also a physical stone that exists within the story you know the the 36,501 blocks of stone that Nuar uses when we first discussed it i I remember discussing what the significance of that number is and not really coming to a a definite answer. What we were saying before about, you know, what is the significance of 12 for this novel? And we talked about the relationship of 12 to to 120, but also to 12 months of the year. I I would see that uh, that 36,500 as being the kind of the numerical... um, 
uh, instantiation of completeness and unity and maybe eternity, infinity. Um, and it's, it's also interesting that in being the surplus one part, uh, it's, it's kind of this ambiguous space where it's simultaneously you are um, completely inessential and yet you're completely unique and individual. Um, and, and I think also in previous episodes, uh, maybe we kind of uh, alluded to the idea of um, the question of desire and even the question of free will as being related to, uh, you know, w what do you do with surplus desire or, or maybe the human mind as a kind of surplus capacity of man? You know, that's the, instead of the fire being stolen by Prometheus, uh, maybe it just, it is something that the gods never intended to create and never even, um, you know, really uh, thought about, or it's, it's kind of this purely uh, uh, extra ability of no great significance, maybe from that, from that, from that like eternal, uh, omniscient, omnipotent uh perspective yeah i think it is i think it's pretty fascinating the the idea of the stone the stone that was left over it was crafted for this uh this grand magical purpose uh but in the end it was of no use um and so as you say yeah it's simultaneously this leftover thing this redundant thing but at the same time it's unique and it's also magical and it's also you know whereas the rest of the stones were standing for all eternity in a column holding in the sky this one stone was able to venture off through the ages enjoying all sorts of experiences and pleasures at the same time that you know the fact that the it's also this, this kind of funny thing where it's uh you know this showing like godly uh fallibility and so it's it's really interesting because it's it really seems to me kind of multi-hinged and there's different ways to take the interpretation Anyway, as as that beginning makes clear, uh, despite being sometimes described as a realist novel, and I understand why, of course, because it, it depicts a lot of ordinary kind of life in a very straightforward way. Despite that description as a realist novel, it's full of very kind of surreal, mystical elements. Uh, and so, you know, it, it could just as easily be described as magical realist, you know, um, and those kind of mystical elements include the stone itself, um, but also there's a, a recurring, there's a pair, a, a, a Buddhist and a Taoist, um, who kind of <laughs> appear and disappear. They kind of weave themselves in and out of the story at important points. Uh, and sometimes just a Taoist on his own. And then there's also this this kind of otherworldly realm um, uh, called in the Hawks translation, the land of illusion in Chinese, Taishu uh, Huanjing, mm -hmm. which is this, yes, yeah, this kind of spirit realm that characters happen to fall in and out of at different times. Um, and so it's it's in in the beginning, we, we, we learned that the stone was mm -hmm. spent some time in this, this land of illusion. And there the stone um, watered a flower, a, a crimson pearl flower, um, giving the, the flower life. He, he watered it with this kind of special mm -hmm. magical sweet dew um uh, and as a result this crimson pearl flower was kind of uh permanently you know indebted to 
to the stone. Um, and so we kind of know that the the crimson pearl flower is incarnated as a as a real person, um, uh, as the character uh, Lin Daiyu in in the story. And the stone is is also kind of somehow the the you know made flesh in the character Jia Baoyu, right. who we, who we mentioned is the kind of central central figure in the story. Yeah, the, so one of the ideas there was that because she was watered with this sweet dew, uh, and she herself had no um, sweet dew with which to repay him to repay the stone. Um, the idea would be that she would repay him with the tear shed during the whole of a mortal lifetime. Uh, and, and so this was kind of a, an important concept. Uh, although, again, it's very, um, the logic on one hand seems realistic, right? It's posed using this uh, analogy of, um, of credit and debt. At the same time, that it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and even the characters themselves um, yeah. speak to its um, kind of fantastical or um, surreal quality, and so that's kind of a really important element, but also a really kind of interesting effect that the novel produces. Yeah, definitely, uh, and you know, there's a there is a recurring theme of affairs of the heart, you know human romantic and sexual relations being expressed in the language of debt and credit as you said which is mm -hmm. I, I suppose the significance of which we maybe not kind of fully fully worked out and we'll need to to continue to examine right i tend to associate that and so we we see in this novel um these buddhist and also these Taoist elements and i I kind of um, resist separating them completely because uh, I, I think these um, historically instantiated ideological systems actually interact and overlap in, in really significant ways that um, we can really uh, kind of like, from a Western, quote unquote, Western perspective, we can maybe tend to uh, try to distinguish them too much. At the same time that this idea of like a... Um, a life debt seems to me more Buddhist than Taoist. Um, and so I guess I would actually make that distinction there. We have this uh, very mystical, surreal beginning. But once that's done, we, we kind of plunge headfirst into the, the world of, of people, uh, you know, the material world. And we begin in the, the city of uh, Suzhou, which is in the east of China. Um, uh, and we're introduced at the beginning to two characters, Zhen Xiyin and uh, Jia Yuzhen. So Zhen Xiyin is a, is a kind of comfortably well-off man in his 50s. He's married. He has a, a young daughter called uh, Ying Lian, uh, who's at this stage uh, two or three years old. And then Jia Yuzhen is his, is his neighbor. Um, but he, by contrast, is, is much younger. He's kind of in his... Twenties, uh, we think, early twenties. He's kind of penniless, but he's highly intelligent and ambitious. Um, and yeah, he he lodges in a in a temple uh, just next door to the the Jin household. Um, uh, and yeah, his his name is Jia Yuzhen, 
which means he is one of the same jazz as the central jazz family, but he is only a, a kind of really distant relative of them. Um, he's not in any way part of that kind of central family. Um, and being introduced to these two characters nearly simultaneously um, introduces us to one of the kind of very common features of this novel, which is uh, wordplay, specifically homophony. Uh, you know, so so in Chinese you have this compared to English more limited range of sounds. There are fewer distinct sounds in Chinese than there are in English, uh, and that means that it's much easier to uh, yeah play on the fact that two characters or two 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 words sound the same, kind of a bit like punning in English, but without necessarily carrying the same kind of connotation. You know, punning often is is done for comedic effect in English. Whereas here, it, it isn't necessarily intended to be funny. It's intended to convey a, a you know, a double meaning or perhaps a hidden meaning. Chen uh, mm-hmm. Xiyin's surname is Zhen, which sounds very similar to the Chinese character, uh, the Chinese word Zhen, which you know means real or true or kind of you know solid, concrete. Uh, and then Jia Yutun's surname is Jia, mm-hmm. which sounds like the Chinese word Jia meaning false, illusory, untrue. Um, uh, mm-hmm. And there is this constant interplay in the novel between the idea of Jun, true, and Jia, false. Um, and the two being kind of commingled, uh, confused, mixed up, um, yeah, appears again and again and again throughout the text. There's a um, kind of re- reoccurring couplet that appears on a gateway demarcating uh the the space between um the land of illusion the taishu huanjing and the the real world of the novel um and so the hawks reads uh truth becomes fiction when the fiction's true real becomes not real where the unreal's real. So it's kind of a tongue twister, a bit of a, a puzzling statement, but it speaks to the uh, kind of the, the overlap between these seemingly opposed forms, between reality and fantasy, or between truth and fiction. I suppose it's a kind of nod by the author to the fact that this is... Um perhaps autobiographical material presented as fiction, um, kind of recognizing that what is presented here as false is, you know, derived from truth. Um, But it's not as simple as that. You know, he's not simply implying, even though this is written as fiction, it represents an accurate record of of real history. You know, there are are multiple different kind of layers of, of meaning to this true false kind of dichotomy and you could also take it in, in the other direction you could say that even in reality you know even in our reality there is a kind of um operative component to fiction right and so our you know especially as social beings we are um very much subject to and engaged in the construction of social fictions and, and so that's kind of a, a reason, actually, to sometimes 
to use literature or to use the arts as a way to um, to create fiction in order to realize what was already fiction in your you know real uh, you know like quote unquote lived experience. Yeah, I, I mean, we have the notion of something that I think is called uh, intersubjective. Hmm. Maybe this is not the time I'm thinking of, but it's it's the the idea that there are things which are there are things which are objectively true, and then there are things which are subjective, as a, a matter of subjective belief, uh, and then there are things which are not objectively true, mm -hmm. but are agreed upon collectively to be true. You know that we have these kind of shared mm -hmm. myths or shared agreed facts. So you could do a similar kind of um, you could create a, a similarly puzzling matrix and you could talk about the objectively subjective or the subjectively objective it's, it's very similar to <laughs> yeah um like the, the the central couplet that we that we mentioned so we're, we're starting out with Zhen Xiyin and uh Jia Yutun. they are good friends uh and the older man uh Zhen he regards the younger man Jia uh with something approaching a kind of like fatherly or maybe uncle un kind of avuncular i suppose avuncular affection uh so one day when he, uh, jia is at the 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 house of jun Xiyin, he has a he he's alone in one of the rooms and he glances out into the garden and sees a, a maid picking flowers there uh and so he and, and the maid uh, uh she's called jiao xing uh in the mm -hmm. horse she's known as lucky they share this kind of brief moment. Yeah. It's unspoken, but it, it leaves a kind of very great impression on, on each of them. She gives him a, the classic double take. She gives him a look, and then she gives him a second look. And that's how he knows she likes him. <laughs> <laughs> and so in a short space of time, you see this remarkable reversal of fortune, both for Jia Yutun and also for Zhen Xiyin. So as Jia Yutun is going through this rapid improvement in fortune, uh, Zhen fortune is, is declining dramatically. So it all begins from one point. They're, they're having dinner together and drinking wine. And uh, Jia confesses to Zhen that he has aspirations of taking the imperial exams, which would you know allow him to become uh, <clears throat> an imperial official, which is the one of the few paths to uh, you know great wealth and, you know, importance in China at the time. Um, and Chen, who has this kind of fatherly affection, as, as we mentioned, um, is only too happy to give money to uh, to Jia to pay for him to travel to the capital um, and to take the exams. Uh, and he gives him some some new clothes for good measure. Uh, so off, off he goes, off Jia Yusun goes. And then it all begins to unravel for Chen. So during the, the Lantern Festival, uh, his daughter, Yinglian, is mm. out on the street with one of the servants viewing the kind of colorful lanterns that are hung up there. And this servant puts her down for a second to go have a pee in an alleyway. Um, and when he returns, Yinglian has vanished. Um, and he searches for her all night long but can't find her. And in shame, he runs away instead of returning home. A few months later, uh, a fire breaks out at the temple next door to the, mm. the Jun house. The temple burns down, and so does the Jun's household and the other the houses on the street. Um, and so they're forced to to leave the city, 
fortunately for them because they're very well off they have a they have a farm in the countryside that they can go to but in recent years there's been a lot of um flooding and drought in that area presumably not at the same time um uh, and that's led to famines which has led to kind of uh, brigands roaming the area and so it's not really safe for them to live there so they sell their farm uh, and they take the money and they go to live with Jun's wife's father a man named uh, Feng Su and uh, Feng Su rather kind of despises his son-in-law and so they, they give him the money to find them a new home but instead he steals most of it and with what's left he buys a kind of half ruined cottage on um some very kind of poor farmland um and so faced with this kind of reversal in fortune uh Junshin is um he falls into a kind of despair and he's out wandering um on the road near his house one day when he meets a Taoist monk and just mm. like that he decides to to run off with him um to abandon his his life and his troubles and go wandering with this monk instead. That's maybe a common theme we see. Uh, we, we, we've dubbed it the Qing Dynastic deadbeat dad. Yeah, we have, haven't we? And so we, have few, we see a few instances of uh, absent father figures. That's maybe uh, kind of part of the social commentary that this novel provides. It's the kind of Kerouac on the road, isn't it? But for the, the 18th century in China. So his poor wife is left alone. Well, her and a couple mm. of the, their few remaining servants. And she goes to live with her father. Uh, and she and her servants have to do kind of small bits of embroidery uh, in order to, to make enough money to survive. Anyway, one day there's a knock at the door. And there's a new kind of governor in town. And he's sent someone asking for, for Jun in. But because Jun isn't there, because he's at this point run off to be a Taoist, uh, the father-in-law, Feng Su, has to go in his place. And so everyone is initially very worried that, you know, the reason the governor is sent for him is because he's in trouble. But actually, it turns out it's good news. Uh, so that new governor is none other than Jia Yutun, the formerly penniless man living in the temple, who's now kind of done very well for himself. He, he's, he passed the exams. Uh, he's now a government official, and he wants to marry uh, Lucky, the maid that he had mm. that moment with uh, all those years ago. Uh, so she becomes his second wife. Uh, she bears him a son. And then shortly afterwards, Jia Yutun's first wife dies. And so Lucky goes from being a maid to a concubine to a full-blown wife uh, in fairly quick succession. So so just like her husband, her fortunes uh, improve very rapidly in, the, in a very short space of time. So what happens next? Jiayu Sun, maybe because this is his first post and he doesn't quite understand how to sort of play the game, he manages to upset uh, some of the other people he works with and they complain to his superiors and eventually it lands on the emperor's desk um, and uh, the emperor is displeased and so Jiayu Sun is dismissed from office. But he's managed to save up a bit of cash. He's managed to embezzle uh, a bit in his time as a, as a government official. I mean, that was just, that was the reason why anyone did it. You know, they, by all accounts, you know, you became a government official because it allowed you to make huge amounts mm -hmm. of money. Uh, or just trading on it, 
insider information. Uh, yeah, yeah, influence peddling a lot. <laughs> so it was no different then. Uh, so Jia Yutun, having been dismissed from office, he makes sure that his wife and child are put up comfortably uh, in a house, uh, and he goes off traveling for a couple of years. Uh, one day he finds himself in the city of uh, Yangzhou, um, so quite near Suzhou, where our, star where our story started, although presumably he's been all over in that time. Uh, and he's a bit short of money, so he ends up taking a job as a private tutor to the daughter of a local important government official, uh, the mm. Salt Commissioner, um, yeah. Lin Ruhai. This daughter is, uh, is Lin Daiyu, who she is the, uh, the, the cousin of our, our central character, Jia Baoyu. Uh, and as we mentioned, she is the, the, the human embodiment of the crimson pearl flower. Mm -hmm. um, and she will go on to be one of the kind of central characters and important love interests in the book. Uh, so she's she's a cousin to Jia Baoyu through her mother, a woman called Jia Mian, who's the sister of Jia Baoyu's father, Jia Zheng. But we don't really mm -hmm. learn anything about Jia Mian because shortly after we first encounter her, she dies. So what we know about Lin Daiyu is that she's a she's an intelligent student, but she's kind of frail, and so she's often, you know, too sick to study. Uh, and then her mother becomes ill with some kind of mortal disease, and uh, Lin Daiyu treats her through her illness, but unfortunately, there's nothing that can be done. And so the mother dies, she is heartbroken, and then Lin Daiyu herself has a recurrence of her illness. So she's, so there's not much studying going on, is, mm -hmm. the, is the, mm -hmm. the long and short of it. So it's an easy gig, basically. Yeah, it's a very easy gig for, for Jiayu Tsun. And so in his very liberal free time, uh, he goes wandering here and there. And one day he goes off wandering outside of, outside of town and he finds this mysterious ruined temple, which is known as the, the Temple of Perfect Knowledge in the, in the Hawks translation. And yeah, it's a kind of mysterious building. It has, um, as with the Land of Illusion, it has these kind of couplets written on either side of the, of the doorway. Um, which have a, a kind of slightly mysterious meaning. So in the Hawks, it says, on one hand side of the, of the archway, it reads, as long as there is sufficiency behind you, you press greedily forward. And on the other side of the archway, it reads, it is only when there is no road in front of you that you think of turning back. And so hoping to make sense of this, he goes inside the temple where he finds a kind of wizened old monk uh, who, is, who is deaf and blind and mostly toothless. Um, and he tries to get some answers from him, but the monk only talks in gibberish. And so frustrated at his inability to find any kind of profound meaning, he goes off to a nearby tavern to have mm. some wine. And there he happens to meet an old friend, uh, Lang Zixing, um, and they get to talking. And they end up talking about uh, Jia Yutun's mm. famous relatives, uh, the, the Jia clan uh, that we you know, that the story focuses on. This conversation between uh, Jia Yutun and Lang Zixing is the two of them just gossiping and chatting, but it serves another function, which is to kind of introduce us to the key figures in those two central branches, the 
Ningguo branch and the Rongguo branch of the of the Jia clan. So so we learned that you know in the one branch in the in the Ning branch, the the eldest member of the family is a man called Jia Jing, who he is completely kind of given up on the material world, uh, and he's devoted himself to a life of of Taoism, and and of you know alchemy and the search for eternal life that sort of thing. Um, he has a son, Jia Jun, um, but he is the opposite. He's kind of solely interested in in worldly pleasures, um, and he's not much interested in really the the difficult work of governing or running a household. And because of that, their their household has has kind of begun to begun to fall apart. It's begun to go to seed slightly. Jia Jun himself has a son, Jia Rong, who is married to a beautiful young woman called Qin Keqing. And it's heavily implied at, at different points in the story that uh, Qin Keqing is uh, actually having an affair with her father-in-law, so with Jia Jun. So that's the, the Ning branch of the Jia clan. Um, on the, the Rong side, um, the oldest member is, is a woman called uh, Jia Mu, uh, Grandmother Jia, basically. Uh, and she has three children. Her oldest son, Jia Sha, who's described as a rather middling sort of person. And to be honest, we don't encounter him that much in the first 12 chapters. We don't see a lot of him. He'll be more important later. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see more of him further down the line. She has a, a younger son, uh, Jia Zheng, who is a, a very kind of strict conservative. And she has a, a daughter, Jiamin, um, although as we see, uh, Jiamin is the mother of Lin Dayu, the student of Jia Yutun, um, and so as we've as we've discovered, she's just recently died. So, so the oldest son there, Jia She, uh, has a son of his own called Jia Lian, who uh, is married to a, a kind of very intelligent and forthright young woman called Wang Xifeng. Now, Wang Xifeng is um, she's kind of responsible for running the household on the on the wrong side, um, and so she is kind of constantly dealing with various sorts of domestic and household matters. Yeah, and we know of her that she has quite a fiery temperament, um, and so she's sometimes referred to as Peppercorn Feng, right? Feng lads. Right, right. Actually, the, the first moment we are introduced to her, that's what Grandmother Jia. Uh, refers to her as, um, and so Shi uh, Feng is going to be really a really important character. Maybe I think she gets more uh, screen time, arguably, even than uh, Lin Daiyu, um, Bao Yu's love interest. Somebody online described Shi Feng as a kind of anti-heroine, and I, I think that's actually rather astute. You can maybe talk about how this novel is innovative, uh, not only in um, you know having these prominent female characters who are um, relatively fleshed out in terms of their personalities and their kind of like having a more dynamic um, qualities than you see in a lot of traditional novels and uh, and so-called romance novels. Um, yeah, yeah, they're they're a lot more three dimensional. They're a lot more autonomous, and as you say, uh, their decisions and their actions are actually driven by their own 
interests mm-hmm. rather than merely by reference to whichever man they're involved with, uh, which is depressing in a way to su- suggest that that's innovative, but <laughs> but it does mark it out from a, from a lot of not just literature of the time, but literature of the present day. Exactly, uh, yeah. Art, art of the present day. I also wanted to point out maybe that, you know, the idea of an anti-hero is sort of a, a fairly modern uh, literary construct. But an anti-heroine seems to be even more, you know, even today, I think that would be fairly innovative. Because um, I think most of the anti-heroes you see are uh, male characters. Yeah, definitely. Um, or if you have a, a female character that is has negative qualities, it, it, it tends to move toward the kind of the exaggerated... Um, like a, like a purely negative uh, kind of like female sadism or the abuse of power, the authoritarian, the kind of like it's flat authoritarian character. Yeah, it, it, exactly. It marks her out as a bad character. Whereas Shi Feng is kind of, I, I would say, maybe if their overall shading is a little bit negative, it's still, it's hard to say. It's really dynamic. And you can imagine a lot of uh, readers actively identifying with the character. Yeah, I think so. We were just going through Grandmother Jia's three children. Uh, the elder son, Jia Xia, her daughter, Jia Min, and her, her younger son, Jia Zheng. So Jia Zheng, as we mentioned, he's this kind of strict Confucian, you know, he's he's very kind of upright and conservative. Um, but he, you know, he holds a a government post he has he puts a lot of emphasis on education he's a very strict father you know that that kind of type so he's married to a woman called lady wang uh wang Furen in the in the chinese and they have um a couple of children but among them is our central figure uh jia baoyu so what we learn about jia baoyu in this passage when they're when they're kind of gossiping in the tavern is that he is quite an unusual young boy um he's a bit peculiar uh he was born with this piece of jade in his mouth um which marked him out as special from birth um and that piece of jade he now wears on a string around his neck and this piece of jade is the stone as in the story of the stone stone um in the tavern uh you know jia yutsun and long long zixing are having a, a discussion about what what kind of person Baoyu must be because you know he's he's prone to unusual behavior and strange remarks and you know they talk about how some people are uh imbued with with goodness and there are some people who are kind of imbued with with evil but some are this kind of mixture of of the two in in turmoil um and they think that Baoyu is is that kind of person you know and I guess that's a good way of kind of understanding him as I don't think it's necessarily a question of good or evil so much as he to me represents he's kind of chaotic is the is the way I would think of him. He is I think on balance good and driven by by wanting to do good things, but he is he is in his nature very chaotic. And that can you know, that that causes different sort of impacts and reactions. Mm. Yeah. And that's actually referenced, I think, in his poem in chapter five, where, uh, or at least in one of the poems in chapter five, where there's the idea that he's sort of 
pulled about to and fro by his um, his fleeting attention and by his kind of overextension with, you know, he, he's so involved in the lives of all of his um, various female cousins that he's unable to, uh, arguably unable in the end to protect any of them. That would be one way to interpret um, both his personality and maybe some of his shortcomings. Yeah, I think so. Um, so having having finished this discussion in the tavern, uh, Jia Yutun then encounters another friend, uh, Zhang Rugui, who tells him that his dismissal uh, has been kind of rescinded, or at least you know his 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 imperial disfavor is now at an end. And if he travels to the capital, then he may be able to get a new government posting somewhere else. So he you know he's he's back on the gravy train. Um, <laughs> Uh, and then simultaneously, uh, Lin Dayu, his student, uh, whose mother has just died, her father says, "You know, I'm, I'm not going to remarry, and it's it's not right for me to try to raise you on my own. It's better for you to be raised by your mother's family." So he decides to send Lin Dayu off to live with her her mother's family, i.e., the 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 Jazz, um, in the capital as well. So because of that. Uh, Lin Dayu and Jia Yutun travel together to the capital and she goes to stay with her family and he gets assigned to a new posting uh, to a place called uh, Yingtian Fu which I think is in modern day uh, Nanjing anyway in his new post he uh, is required to to act as kind of judge in a in a murder case um, and so in this case there's a, a young man Feng Yuan uh, who fell in love with a slave girl, um, and this slave girl is uh, none other than um, Yinglian, the young daughter of Chen Shiyin, who was abducted during the Lantern Festival. Um, so she's been, yeah, she's she's been kept as a slave all these years. Um, anyway, this young man Feng Yuan sees her, falls in love at first sight, and decides he wants to buy her freedom and marry her. Um, so he pays um, the slave owner uh, for her, but in accordance with traditional marriage customs, he decides to wait three days before she joins his household. Uh, and during those three days, another young man sees her. Uh, this young man is called Xuepan. This other young man sees the slave girl and decides he wants to buy her as well. So he buys her off the slaver. So the slave owner has been paid twice. And the slave owner is very happy with that and just packs up and leaves. And then when, when Feng Yuan comes to collect, he finds out that she's been bought by somebody else. And so a fight breaks out between the two young men, Feng Yuan and Xuepan. But because Xuepan comes from this very, you know, incredibly wealthy and powerful family, he has, um, you know, his, his kind of goons, his thugs uh, on hand and they beat this guy, uh, and they just, they beat him to death, basically. It's a pretty clear, it's a kind of open and shut case. And Jia Yutun initially decides to pursue it, uh, kind of energetically. But he's advised against this by uh, one of the, one of his kind of ushers, one of his, uh, one of his employees, basically, who says that because the Xue family are very very wealthy 
it would be politically unwise to prosecute Xuepan too severely. Uh, and so instead they reach a kind of settlement where the Xuepan family pay some money to the family of the deceased man uh, and, and they kind of leave it there. But what the Shuez decide to do is is also travel up to the, the capital where they have some business interests of their own and some houses. Um, but they decide to go and stay with their family while they're there. And coincidentally, their family is also the Jia clan. So Xuepan's mother, uh, who we know as Aunt Xue, Xue uh, Yima in the Chinese, uh, she's the sister of Lady Wang the mother of Jia Baoyu, our, our central figure. Um, so Aunt Xue, her son, Xue Pan, who's just murdered a guy, and her daughter, Xue Bao Chai, travel to the capital and they move in with the with the jazz. And so having kind of arrived there, um, the novel now sets its focus kind of firmly on the Jia family, um, in you know in its in its two grand mansions in in the capital the initial several chapters are you know they're interesting story in their own right but you can see that they're just kind of pulling the various threads together so that the story can kind of get underway properly mm -hmm. and a couple of chapters pass before we really meet a lot of the main characters um yes yes um including our our central central character Baoyu the the focus of the novel shifts to the the Jia clan um uh, and so we one of the things that we we see is the first kind of encounter between uh Lin Daiyu um so Jia Yutsun's old student and her new yeah her her new family as it were um um so when she first meets her cousin Jia Baoyu the central character um they have this sense of kind of already knowing each other somehow, uh, even though they've never met. Mm. Like a deja vu almost. Exactly, exactly. Uh, uh, and so this is kind of harking back to the the scene where the, the, the magical stone is watering the crimson pearl flower with this sweet dew and suggesting, yeah, that, that Lin Daiyu and Jabal Yu are, are the the kind of incarnation of the the flower and the stone uh, in human form. During that first meeting, um, Lin Daiyu makes some passing comment mm -hmm. that causes Bao Yu to fly into a rage, uh, and he tears off the jade pendant he's wearing and, and throws it at the floor. Um, but they are they are swiftly reconciled after this outburst, um, and they quickly become very very close, um, mm. and indeed physically close, sleeping in in next door rooms. So. So one day, some of the members of the household are are having a kind of tea party in one of the gardens, the the All Scents Garden, um, where the winter plum trees are blossoming. So everyone is assembled to look at this beautiful plum blossom, uh, and among their number is Bao Yu, who, after a little while, becomes tired and decides to go off to take a nap. But because the All Scents Garden is in the Ning household rather than the wrong household uh, which Bao Yu belongs to. It's a long way to travel back to his bedroom. So he ends up sleeping in one of the bedrooms in the Ning household, 
Um, and it's the bedroom of uh, Qin Keqing, who is one of the women of that household. And so while sleeping in her bedroom, Bao Yu has this very vivid, detailed and quite long dream in which he travels to the magical realm known as the Land of Illusion. We, we mentioned earlier, uh, Tai Xu Huan Jing. And while he's there, he meets a fairy named Disenchantment. Uh, in Chinese, her name is Jing Huan. Uh, and she acts as his guide um, during his visit. Now, this land of illusion is inhabited by kind of fairies and spirits and godlike mm -hmm. creatures um, who are, I guess, kind of independent of the human world, but they're also concerned with it. And in some ways, they perhaps exert some influence or control over over human affairs. While he's in this land of illusion, um, Bao Yu reads um, a book there uh, entitled The Twelve Beauties of Jinling. So in, in Chinese, it's Jinling Shi'ar Chai. Jinling is the traditional name for uh, Nanjing, the, the southern capital. Um, and there's some indication that the author was sort of torn between whether he should set the novel in the north or the south. Um, and occasionally you find these inconsistencies. Uh, and, and this is arguably one of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, when talking, I've tended to use the term capital or, or imperial capital rather than saying Beijing outright. Mm -hmm. Because even though Beijing is the capital of the Qing dynasty, uh, as you say, there there's some inconsistency or or maybe deliberate kind of uncertainty about where the book is really set, whether it is set in in Beijing or whether it's set in Nanjing or or, or whether the two have somehow been collapsed into one another as separate places. Right. Um, exactly. Anyway, this book he reads, The Twelve Beauties of Jinling, um, it's full of pictures accompanied by poems. Uh, and these seem to describe the world that he lives in and maybe some of the people who inhabit it. But it, it's quite riddle-like, the, the poems. He can't really make sense of their meaning. And he's maybe just beginning to make sense of it mm -hmm. when the fairy disenchantment, who's acting as his guide, slams the book shut because she's worried that he will begin to understand too much. Um, and so she invites him to come and watch a performance by some of the other fairies and spirits that inhabit the land of illusion. And the name of this this performance is The Dream of Red Chamber, uh, Hong Long Meng. And it's a it's a song cycle. And again, the, the subject of the song seems to be the world that Bao Yu lives in and, mm -hmm. and some of the people within it. But again he he can't quite make sense of the meaning of these of these songs. Mm. So it's kind of these prophetic but uh symbolically veiled images exactly exactly so w we can we can understand this chapter as kind of playing with one of the conventions of the novel form in in china uh so i mentioned this before that some of what the author does kind of departs from the standard convention of of the novel form um one of those conventions is something known in chinese as uh kai chang shi tzu which is something like an opening poem or a scene setting poem. Um, and this normally happens right at the beginning of the novel. Um, 
and it kind of sets the scene and uh, introduces some of the characters, but it also foreshadows the development of the plot of the novel. And it kind of describes where the novel is going to go. But in The Dream of the Red Chamber, in in this book, there is no official Kai Chong. There's no, there's no official scene setting poem. Um, however, this this dream sequence, and in particular the the song cycle in it, I think can be kind of understood as filling that role. So even though it's not at the very beginning of the novel, it's in the it's in the fifth chapter, so it's it's near the beginning, and it's I think fulfills a similar function. Do, do you think so? You know? Uh, yes, I, I would say it's definitely an innovation and a pretty significant innovation. Um, you know, this is chapter five, and so if you go back, uh, we spent a considerable amount of time working through this material. Um, but it kind of makes sense that it would be uh, so um, intricate if it is introducing all these characters, um, but doing so in a way that is a little bit um, less direct or maybe significantly less direct. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so I mean, in the conventional form, you, you open and on page one, there's a poem explaining what's going to happen in the novel. Whereas here, the poem, there's this, you know, rather than it being told directly to the reader, it's being it's information that's being conveyed to one of the characters within the book. Mm. So the function is the same, I suppose, but it's couched in a different setting. Mm. And as we mentioned, it's rather more riddle-like. It's less, it's less obvious, the meaning. It's, there's this kind of symbolic significance mm -hmm. to what they're saying, but the literal meaning isn't immediately clear. Um, and that gives it this this dreamlike quality. Um, and, and so that's kind of one of the main themes of the novel is the question of the meaning of dreams and the relationship between dreams and fantasy and desire. Um, because this is ultimately a dream of desire, as we're going to say. Um, and, and so there's kind of there's something very dynamic that's not only being uh, discussed openly, but also, you know, the, the author's method is itself an indication of his beliefs and his like conception. It's like, it's like the, the theory is the praxis. If you exactly, me. exactly. Yeah. yeah. The medium, the medium is the message. The media. Yes. yes. Uh, the dream medium is the dream message. Maybe exactly like that. Exactly. So in, a, in our dream sequence, in his dream, Bayou begins to get tired and decides to go to bed. So he's asleep, and yet he still wants to sleep. Mm, yeah. And so the fairy disenchantment takes him to uh, a room where he can sleep. And there he meets another kind of fairy spirit, nymph, whatever you want to call it. Um, and she's known as Ke Qing or uh, Jian Mei. And she's supposed to be this kind of embodiment of both of Bao Yu's main love interests in the story. Uh, Lin Daiyu on the one hand and Xue Baochai, his other cousin. And they're somehow jointly embodied in this one spirit-like figure. And so the fairy disenchantment um, instructs him kind of in the art of love, as it were. And so Baoyu and Ke Qing have sex in the stream and then they fall asleep. And then 
uh, you know, on waking, they they leave the room and they go wandering in the land of illusion, and they find themselves approaching a, a deep ravine, which is known as the the ford of error or Mizian uh, in in Chinese. Um, and at that moment, the fairy disenchantment appears behind them, calling for them to turn back, you know, to avoid this this ford of error at all costs. And I think we discussed at the time, it seems to be something like the river Styx, maybe it's a, it's a, maybe a kind of death metaphor. And so we see it in this dream, as in so many things, the juxtaposition mm. of sex and death. Um, somehow the two are kind of inextricably linked. Anyway, just as she's giving this warning, a whole host of demons and, and monsters and creatures rise up from inside the ravine and they're kind of reaching up to grab Bayou and, and drag him down into the depths of the ravine. Um, and he cries out in his sleep for Kerting to save him. And at that moment he awakes. As as mentioned, this is a this is a dream of desire. Um, and having awoken, Bayou realizes that, you know, this was in fact a wet dream, you know, and he, he's ejaculated in his clothes. And his his maid, um, Aroma, Hua uh, Xiren in the Chinese, she she helps him to clean himself up, mm-hmm. um, and he recounts the story of the dream to her, um, and she is kind of fascinated, entertained, kind of intrigued by the story, um, and then the two of them decide to enter into a sexual relationship. So having having learned how sex works in the dream mm-hmm. he now decides to put it into practice in in real life and he actually he named her he gave her the name hua Xiren, uh in reference to a couplet uh accompanying a painting on uh Keqing's wall uh and so this, this is interesting sort of she's like the displacement of his desire for um, coaching and by implication, Daiyu and Baochai. Mm. And I think there is maybe some significance in the fact that she's the first person he sees when he wakes from this dream. And yeah, as you say, she somehow thus becomes the <laughs> the sort of object. Of his she's definitely implicated in this desire. space of desire, even if it's not uh, as as pure a manifestation as with uh, some of the other characters. So having had this kind of lengthy dream sequence, the story then shifts very much to the kind of material world and its material concerns. Um, so we we focus on a, a peasant family living just outside the capital, uh, the Wang family. And they have a very distant and, you know, possibly spurious relation to the, to the Jia clan. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, they're they're facing hard times. Mm-hmm. Winter is approaching, and they may not have enough kind of money or food to see them through winter. So they decide to go and visit their wealthy relatives um, to ask for help. And the grandmother of the family, uh, Granny Liu Liu Lao in Chinese, and her young grandson Banar, um, make the journey to the capital. And this chapter gives us this kind of comparison of the the relative status customs, speech, and the kind of financial material circumstances of, on the one hand, 
a rich noble family like the Jazz, and on the other hand, a, a poor peasant family like the Wangs. Um, and so, we, you know, we have several instances of this. In one scene, Granny Liu is startled by this mysterious ticking device that she's never seen before, which starts chiming loudly. Uh, you know, it's a, of course a clock. Um, and in another scene, she mistakes one of the servants, uh, Ping Ar, uh, patience in the in the Hawks translation. Um, she mistakes this servant for Wang Xifeng, the mistress of the house, because her you know clothing uh, is so expensive and she has the demeanor of I suppose of a noble rather than of a servant. So when when Granny Liu and Ban Ar first arrive at the house, they encounter a group of men outside the gate. Um, and these men immediately recognize Granny Liu for the peasant she is. And initially they ignore her inquiries uh, before deliberately misdirecting her. Um, fortunately, a, a nearby old man takes pity on her uh, and points her in the right direction to a kind of back door to the mansion where she can find uh, Joe Ray's wife, uh, a minor servant in the Jar household who can assist her. She meets with Joe Ray's wife. Um, and after some discussion, uh, she agrees to help her gain an audience with, with Wang Xifeng, uh, ostensibly to pay her respects, but really, we know, to ask for, for money. Uh, and then after waiting a considerable length of time, um, she, Granny Liu and Ban Ar, do get to meet Wang Xifeng, who agrees to help her by giving her 20 tails of silver, um, which, is, which is a very hefty sum for her. You know, it's, it's I think, perhaps more than she even expected. Um, and then having accompanied, having accompanied Granny Liu out of the house, Zhou Rei's wife goes to visit Lady Wang, um, you know, who, who's kind of almost like one of the matriarchs of the household, I suppose. Zhou Rei's wife goes to, to visit her to, to give a report on Granny Liu's visit. Um, on the way, she, she encounters uh, Xue Baochai, uh, who, as we mentioned, is the cousin of Jia Baoyu. Uh, and she's the younger sister of Xue Pan, the, the, the young man who had his, his rival murdered uh, earlier in the story. So Xue Baochai tells Zhou Rei's wife about the, the special pills that she has to take because she, like Lin Daiyu, has a, a kind of recurrent illness um, and she's recently had a relapse of them. So these mm -hmm. pills... Uh, you know, no medicine would work on her until there were these ones prescribed by a, a Taoist priest. Um, and there are there are a mixture of rare flowers and and rainfall, which has fallen at very specific times mm -hmm. of year. Uh, so you have to mix these two things together and store them in a in a kind of earthenware jar buried in the garden. Um, they're called cold fragrance mm -hmm. pills, uh, and they have a very kind of particular smell anyway Joel Ray's wife co goes on to give a report to Lady Wang uh, and while she's there Lady Wang's sister uh, Aunt Xue, Xue Yima so the mother of Xue Baochai and Xue Pan um, she gives Joel Ray's wife 12 artificial mm -hmm. flowers um, these artificial flowers were um, a gift from the imperial palace. And Aunt Shua says to Joe Ray's wife, 
you know, please could you distribute these to the various kind of women of the household? Um, and so at this time, we also briefly meet uh, a character called Kaltrop uh, in Chinese, Xiangling, who is the young slave girl at the center of the murder case. Um, and as we previously mentioned, she's the abducted daughter of Zhen Xi and the character from the beginning of the story who encountered all of those misfortunes in quick succession. And so she's now a, she's now a servant in the household. She's been renamed. So previously she was known as Ying Lian mm -hmm. uh, Lotus. And yes, yeah, she's now a, um, a different flower. She's a Caltrop instead. Although I guess they're both um, water-based. Yeah. So th there seems to be a thematic uh, unity there. And so Jore's wife makes her way through the house, uh, distributing the flowers to the different um, women of the household. And we see them all kind of, we kind of get a glimpse of what they're doing in their spare time. So some of them are resting, some of them are playing. Uh, and in Wang Xifeng's case, she and her husband are making love. Um, so mm -hmm. Jory has to wait until they're finished. <laughs> um, and then the following day, uh, Wang Xifeng and Jia Baoyu are a central character. Um, they're both members of the, the Rong branch of the Jia family. Um, and they're invited to spend the day with the with some members of the Ning branch, the sort of the other the other branch. Um, and so they go to the next door house to spend the day with them. Um, and among the the members of the Ning branch is uh, Qin Keqing, um, who is the wife of Jia Rong. Um, mm -hmm. And it was in her bed that Bao Yu slept, whilst having his kind of grand dream sequence that we just discussed mm -hmm. and she reveals that she has a, a younger brother Qian Zhong who is visiting um, and he and Jia Baoyu are, are about the same age uh, and they quickly become close friends and they decide that they should both enroll in the in the clan school so there's a there's a school for all of the male members of the of the Jia clan um, you know where they can be educated in, in the Confucian classics and and other things. Then, having spent the day there, uh, Wang Xifeng and Jia Baoyu uh, are leaving to return home, when one of the the servants of the Ning household, Big Jiao, uh, Jiao Da, mm. um, who is who's drunk and he's aggrieved about having been disrespected, um, he begins shouting. Uh, secrets about the family he begins kind of blurting out you know um various kind of rumors and and um quite kind of slanderous comments about different members of the family um and among those rumors is uh, an allegation of incest and he doesn't say specifically between whom but it's pretty clear from context and from other clues in the story that he's talking about uh, Qin um, as we said, the the wife of Jia Rong and the young woman in whose bedroom that Bao Yu slept while having his dream sequence. Uh, between her and and her father-in-law, uh, Jia Zhen. Eventually, the other servants mm -hmm. managed to restrain Big Jiao and stuff his mouth with with horse dung and straw. So his his scandalous um, words are, are silenced. 
anyway, some some days later, um, the 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 jazz are enjoying some theatre at home, so they have you know actors come and perform for them to entertain them. Um, and grandmother Jia, the the matriarch of the Rong branch, and grandmother Tu Jia Baoyu, she decides to leave midway through this theatre to have a rest. Now Baoyu accompanies her home. And then instead of returning to the theater, he um, decides to go visit his cousin, Xue Baochai, who, as we mentioned, has had a, a relapse of her illness, uh, which has required her to take these cold fragrance pills. Um, and so he sets off to visit her, and he has this experience crossing the mansion of um, trying to avoid running into anyone who might slow him down. Yeah. And and the person who he wants to avoid most of all is his own father, Jia Zheng, who we mentioned is very stern and strict. Um, and we'll see a bit more of that kind of interaction between them later on. It's like Frogger, but with, uh, you know, uh, household attendants and various pages and, and hanger-ons. As in, <laughs> as in, as in Frogger, as in you know any kind of any kind of game like that where you're you're trying to sneak through without being spotted, he is spotted by several people and they do indeed slow him down. Uh, first among them are um, some of his father's literary gentlemen. So, you know, Baoyu's father Jia Zheng, being a a kind of wealthy and educated man, he he kind of patronizes um, poorer educated men, um, I guess, by providing um, monetary support and maybe a place to live for them. Um, and as a result, they are kind of um, rather obsequious to both to Jia Zheng and to other members of the family, including Bao Yu. So they're constantly kind of flattering and praising him and then once he escapes them he's then cornered by uh one of the wet nurses and then some other servants of the household who want to pay their respects to him finally though he does make his way over to to Balchai's chambers um and while he's there they discover that they um have kind of matching uh necklaces so as already mentioned Baoyu has this piece of jade that he wears around his neck but Balchai has a gold locket. And both the jade pendant and the gold locket have uh, poems inscribed upon them mm -hmm. um, to the effect that the wearer will be protected from evil and, and ill health and they'll have a long life so long as they continue to wear the, the, the locket or pendant, as the case may be. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, in Chinese, their names are... So Bao Yu means precious jade, and Bao Chai means precious hairpin, uh, or which could be uh, reinterpreted as you know precious uh, metal. Um, and so you enter into this sort of uh, what we talked about a few times on the show is this sort of wuxing, this five phase cosmology, and you have these traditional beliefs about how. Um, different substances are supposed to interact. Um, and so we see here the, the, the strong association between Bao Chai and metal. Um, and Bao Yu and, and 
and Jade. Um, and we've also seen before the association between uh, Lin Dayu. She also has Jade in her name, but she's also the crimson, um, the crimson flower. So she's usually associated with uh, with green and with spring. Uh, and so you you can kind of um, once you get a sense for these uh, symbolic this symbolic system, you find yourself seeing it all over throughout the novel. So it's kind of good to have at least a an, ele an elementary sense uh, can really aid one's appreciation for a lot of the imagery. Yeah, absolutely. And you know that the we see it explicitly explicitly referred to later in the story where. Uh, a doctor is giving a diagnosis and he talks about the various uh, internal organs being associated with, uh, you know, earth, fire, mm -hmm. metal, wood. Right. So that's the same system, just uh, kind of its medicalized uh, uh, formulation. So after he and after Bao Yu and Bao Chai have this realization about each other's um, necklaces, um, the the third corner of the love triangle, uh, Lin Dayu, appears. Um, she's also to come, come to check on on Bao Chai and find out how her illness mm. is. Um, and the three of them spend the day together, eating and chatting and playing, um, and and also drinking a certain amount of wine. Uh, and at one point, Bao Yu's old wet nurse, Nanny Li, uh, Li Mama in Chinese. She comes along and chats with them, and she encourages him to to drink a bit less, you know, because he he always he misbehaves. He he tends towards excess, um, mm -hmm. but uh, she doesn't seem to be too successful in in constraining his bad habits. Um, later that day, when Bao Yu returns to his chambers, um, he had specially set aside some some dumplings and some tea for. Uh, some of his other maidservants to uh, to eat and drink. And he discovers that Nanny Lee has come along and taken them for herself. Um, and so he is, uh, he's so angered by this that he smashes the teacup that he'd been holding. Uh, and he wants to have her kind of sacked and thrown out of the household. But his other, his servants kind of convince him just to, to let it go and go to bed instead. Shortly after this, couple of days later, um, Bao Yu and his new friend, Qian Zhong, who, who we mentioned just recently, um, they begin attending the, the clan school, um, along with, with kind of numerous other boys from the, from the wider Jia clan. And Bao Yu goes to bid farewell to his father, Jia Zhong. Um, and it's here that we first see their what their relationship is like and and the kind of the disdain or even contempt that um Jia Zhang feels for his son. He mocks the idea of Bao Yu uh learning anything from study, considering him to be a poor scholar, um, who even has a, a kind of polluting effect on, on, on the household. Um so he's yeah, he's he's rather horrible to his son. Um and so Jiajung is kind of a, a a caricature of certain Confucian ideals 
or at the very least he sort of uh he pretends to um abide by this confucian system while himself not necessarily uh being the most erudite you know individual he he seems to miss a lot of references um i think for jia zheng being a strict confucian is something that allows him to be rather unpleasant to his son <laughs> it's perhaps not the only reason for him having that it's kind of ex post facto justification maybe probably yeah and actually the 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 jung in his name kind of is a reference to rectitude yeah and to correction and you could say maybe that um that uh, propensity uh precedes his confucian orientation and then yeah before before going off to school Bayu also has quite kind of touching farewells both with his his maid servant uh aroma um you know the one he he's in a kind of sexual and romantic relationship with uh and then also his his cousin Lin Dayu um so mm-hmm. due to the close friendship mm-hmm. between Bayu and Qin Zhong rumors spread at school that they are a homosexual couple um we get the sense that this is possibly not baseless not completely unfounded um mm-hmm. uh, and indeed several of the other schoolboys um are in sexual relationships with each other mm-hmm. um there's also this kind of disturbing there's a disturbing point that Xuepan who's as we mentioned one implicated in this murder case and and a kind of um a bit older you know in his very late teens or early 20s um it's suggested that he's been kind of grooming some of the younger schoolboys um you know offering them gifts and money in return for sexual favors um and among the boys that he's groomed is um a boy called Joki Jin in the in the in the Hawks translation so uh Jin Rong in the Chinese and this Joki Jin spreads a, a rumor that uh Qin Zhong and another boy nicknamed Darling um were were preparing to have sex behind the schoolhouse when they were interrupted by by Joki Jin um but this is a largely a fabrication um and so Qin Zhong and Darling they complain to the school teacher um about the the lies that Joki Jin is spreading about them and the normal teacher um is a elderly strict kind of confucian man named uh jia dairu um but he is away on business that day um and so his grandson a young man called jia rei um is is teacher in his place unlike his upright grandfather uh jia rei is is kind of corrupt he does a very poor job of keeping order um and he mismanages the situation um and the classroom degenerates into a full-blown fight anyway at the end of it all joki jin is indeed forced to apologize for for spreading rumors about uh chin jong and darling but he feels very aggrieved to it and he complains to his mother that he's been ill-treated and she in turn tells her sister widow huang who decides to complain about it so widow huang goes to the the ning household to speak to you shi who is one of the important women in that in that branch she is the the wife of jia zhen 
so one of the the men of the of the Jia clan. However, before Widow Huang is able to explain herself, Yoshi begins telling her about her daughter-in-law, uh, Qin Keqing, uh, who's sick with a mysterious illness. So, as as we mentioned before, Qin Keqing is the wife of Jia Rong. She is. It was in her bedroom that Jia Baoyu slept while having his dream sequence, and it's her that is allegedly having an affair with her father-in-law, Jia Zhen, the husband of, of Yoshi, who's, who's just speaking right now. So she has this mysterious illness that no doctor has been able to diagnose and, and, and no cure seems to be working. But they managed to find a doctor, um, Dr. Zhang, who accurately diagnoses Qin Keqing's symptoms and prescribes this rather complex medicine for her. Um, in the interim, the the Ning branch of the household has been preparing for a birthday party. And the birthday party is for the, the head of the family, mm. Jia Jing. Now, as we mentioned earlier, he was the one who had given up any interest in um, the material world and begun pursuing Taoism and immortality and all of that sort of thing. So he couldn't care less that they're throwing him a party. Mm. And he actually tells them not to visit and not to send any gifts. But they decide that, you know, they'll have a party at home and then at the appointed time they'll all kind of um, bow and make a kind of reverence in his direction. So during the party, the family is again watching some theatrical performances by some actors. And a few of them go off to visit uh, Qin Keqing to find out about her illness. So uh, Wang Xifeng, the the young woman from the Rong branch who who's kind of in charge of the household, and Bao Yu go to visit Keqing and ask about her illness. And she says that mm-hmm. even though she has been kind of taking the, even though she's been taking medicine, um, her condition hasn't really improved much and she's worried that she is going to die. Um, on hearing this, Bao Yu gets rather upset um, and Wang Xifeng asks him to leave so that he doesn't cause Ke Qing also to become upset. So Bao Yu leaves and Xifeng and Ke Qing, they, they stay in and, and chat for a while. Um, uh, and then Xifeng leaves but promises she'll, she'll be back to visit before too long. And she's returning to the party through one of the gardens when she has a surprise encounter with Jia Rei, who we just encountered as the teacher from the school, the rather kind of corrupt, bad character. And he's hidden himself in the garden, hoping to speak to her. Um, <clears throat> and so he's using this kind of manufactured chance encounter uh, as a way to try to seduce her. Um, she realizes what his game is. Um, and she's you know, married and has no interest in him. But she decides that to teach him a lesson, she's going to lead him on and then dash his hopes. So first she agrees to, she asks him to come uh, after dark to see her uh, in a back passage near her, her chambers. 
uh, he dutifully waits there the whole night. Um, but she doesn't ever come, and it's freezing cold. Um, and so when he returns the next morning, his his grandfather Jia Dairu, who we mentioned is a, is a strict Confucian, he suspects that Jia Rei has been spending the night <laughs> drinking and gambling and visiting prostitutes, and so he beats him and he kind of makes him kneel in the courtyard, uh, reciting poetry. However, Jia Rei is undeterred and um, visits Wang Shifang again. And so she asks him to come a second time, but to a, a different part of the household um, and wait for her there. Um, and so he, he waits in the darkness um, and, and a figure enters um, and he leaps upon her, smothering this figure with, with kisses and tender caresses. Mm. Um, <laughs> and suddenly another person enters with a torch uh, and in the torchlight... <laughs> Jare sees that the, the, the person he's been kissing and, and cuddling is not Wang Xifeng, but is actually his male cousin, Jia Rong. Whoops. <laughs> Easy, honest mistake. Um, and Jia Rong and the figure with the torch, Jia Chang, tell Jare that Wang Xifeng has actually reported him for trying to seduce her and that there are people looking for him. So in a panic, he knows that he has to escape from the mansion and he asks Jia Rong and Jia Chang to help him do so. Um, and they do, but only after he signs an IOU that he will pay each of them 50 taels of silver. And so they help him to escape, but on the way, because he's having to sneak through kind of back passages and, and, and hide under stairs and things, he gets a, a whole bucket of sewage tipped over his head. So, dejected and stinking, Oh, no. Jare returns home where he falls into a kind of sickness of the spirit um, and as with Ke Qing, there's no doctor or medicine able to cure him and his condition gets gradually worse uh, until one day a passing Taoist monk overhears that Jare is ill and presents him with a special mirror which will cure his illness so this mirror is two-sided and it bears the words a mirror for the romantic on it. So in Chinese, Feng Yue Bao Jian. And um, the monk's instructions are to look into the rear side of the mirror only, because it has two sides. Look into the rear side of the mirror for three days, after which time the sickness will be cured. On no account is, to, is Jare to look into the front side of the mirror. The monk then leaves, saying he will return after three days. Jare looks into the rear side of the mirror and sees this terrifying skull grinning at him. Horrified, he puts down the mirror before picking it up and looking in the front side. In the front side, he sees Wang Xifeng in the mirror, beckoning him in. He follows her in, where they have sex, but after he orgasms, he awakes in bed in a pool of his own semen. Um, he then flips the mirror over and repeats the same procedure again and again until at last he's taken into the mirror by demons who clap him in chains uh, and his family finds his cold, dead body in bed. Angered and sorrowful, his grandfather, uh, Jia Dairu, orders the mirror to be destroyed when all of a sudden a voice is heard. Who's told him to look in the front? 
it is you who are to blame for confusing the unreal with the real. Uh, and in that instant, the mirror flies out of the room into the hand of the Taoist monk waiting outside. Uh, and that more or less is where chapter 12 ends. And that's where the story takes us up to um, mm. one tenth of the way through. So it really covers a lot of material, doesn't it? I mean, we have grand dreams, we have murder and death, we have uh, you know, ordinary domestic scenes, arguments, new friendships, I mean, poetry galore. <laughs> we, mm -hmm. there, there, there's, there's all kind of stuff it covers. Uh, do you have any particular kind of impressions of, of this, this part of the book as a whole? That... Uh, you know, this is obviously a really uh, significant part of the novel. Uh, my impression is that it's going to get more and more interesting in a lot of ways. At the same time that, you know, the, the beginning is... It, it's really rich symbolically uh you know like the first chapter uh has been you know studied extensively uh the fifth chapter mm -hmm. the dream chapter is also very um a common you know it's one of the the most iconic uh parts of the whole of the whole novel um at the same time we haven't really there's so much that that is is awaiting us. We haven't um, yet been introduced to the new garden, um, and so, in a sense, because this is a longer novel, like the the entrance into the novel, I'd say almost requires double this, maybe like twenty twenty four uh, chapters before you're really in the thick of it. Um, that being said, a lot of this material is potentially like standalone, an interesting story. Like the, the story you just mentioned with Jare, that strikes me as um, kind of a tale of its own in some ways. And there might even be some indication that uh, that, that story had been separate or preceded the formation of the novel itself. That's kind of speculative, but I've heard that. Um and so yeah, there's a lot, a lot, a lot going on here. Yeah, what do you think? It's a novel with such, such a long story and such a kind of grand sweep of society at the time, and such an extensive cast that it does take a while to just introduce itself. Um, but I think it does it quite skillfully. So the story is moving forward, even though we're still in the introductory section, and the way that the introduction of characters and themes and symbols is handled is done in such a kind of artful way that it doesn't feel necessarily like you are being introduced to them at the time. You, you only kind of realize on recollection that, oh, okay, this was, you know, this was something which was used to introduce this, you know, this kind of theme, this, this, mm. you know, feature or, 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 this geographical location. I guess um, we, we can also just talk about personal impressions. So like, what was you, what most surprised you? Uh, what were your expectations? Um, I think one thing that's worth mentioning is there is a, a frankness about sex in this book that surprised me to a degree, you know, because I, I, I don't think you would get an equivalent I think in a lot of contemporary 
uh, English language literature. So, you know, English language literature of, say, the 17th or, sorry, the 18th or, say, 19th century might be a bit more prudish on the subject, certainly less direct about it. The novel doesn't necessarily describe sex scenes in detail, but it does make it explicitly clear when, you know, different characters are, are having sex, for example. And it does, you know, it, it's not something that just kind of happens now and then. It's mm. it's even in these initial 12 chapters, there are several different clear episodes. And that to me was, I guess, surprising, but welcome, you know, because it's, I suppose it's intended to be quite a uh, full mm. detailed description of um, what life would have been like at the time. Um, and so I suppose you have to paint that fully, you know, you can't, you can't leave anything out. In the, you know, I would say in the Chinese, like, literary tradition, this novel has been, I'd say, pretty significantly influenced by uh, its predecessor, uh, Jinping Mei, uh, Plum in the Golden Vase, uh, where the sex scenes are much more explicit and you kind of, they're, they're laid out in, in great detail. And it's approaching at times like a, a kind of like a pornographic material. Um, so that that sort of laid down or broken down the barriers a bit. That's my impression, and that once that was open, uh, you know, this novel nowhere near approaches a level of specificity. Um, but it's almost as if, yeah, that kind of like that moved the like what what do people say the Overton window? Um, yeah, moved the Overton window so significantly that maybe that gave more space for. Um, some of the things we see here, even though you know we have seen a lot of euphemistic expressions, and it's it's not as if there's not too much by way of like uh, like depiction of you know the act itself. No, that's true. That's true. But but it's I suppose in a lot of English literature, more of the 19th century rather than the 18th, sex is almost not mentioned at all. I, I suppose what's interesting is when you talk about uh, Jinping Mei having moved the Overton window uh, in as regards depictions of sex in literature in China in the English language you have a work called officially Memoirs of a Woman of Pleasure but popularly known as Fanny Hill which is a, an 18th century erotic novel but the, what's interesting about Fanny Hill is that it doesn't seem to have moved the Overton window in the same way it, in that actually even though it's relatively early in the the canon of English literature. So I think it's 1740 something. That's interesting. That's kind of a nice parallel then. Many of the works that, 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 that follow um, don't seem to have been liberated hmm. in the same way in their attitude to talking about sex. But maybe that's just a, a consequence of the prevailing attitudes of the time in, in the Victorian era in particular. Yeah, that's interesting. It's really a difficult issue because it, it is sort of, it's always the referent uh, but it's also kind of the limit itself. So it's this weird, um, this negative space that defines uh, like the the, the 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 zone of representation. So what else? That, that one of the things which does come across quite strongly in these first 12 chapters on a different note is um, the sense of impending doom, uh, impending downfall. Um, as we said, directly and, and indirectly. So, you know, some of the references in the dream sequence <clears throat> make clear that people are going to 
you know, there's some references to to suicide. There's some references to mistaken marriages. There's some references to, you know, poverty and, and downfall and kind of being in the muck. And I guess those are relatively direct. But there are also some kind of indirect references. So we mentioned right at the beginning, the character Jun Shiyin, after his house is burned down and his daughter has been abducted and he's been swindled out of his money by his father-in-law. When he encounters this Taoist on the road, the Taoist is, is singing a kind of uh, a song. Um, okay. yeah, a ditty almost, yeah. Yeah, a, a kind of slightly nonsense song. But in it, Jun Shiyin hears the, this same kind of message, the, the one of, of downfall. Um, and he comes up on the spot with a, a kind of poem of his own. Um, and the tone of that poem mm. is very much about how those who enjoy kind of a grand life of, of splendor and wealth today will tomorrow find themselves, you know, impoverished, down on their luck, you know. And that's one of the most famous poems, I think, of the novel. Uh, it's featured very prominently in the the 1980s television adaptation, um, and so they've set it to music, right? And right. it appears in like a number of scenes, kind of these various uh, uh, like musical montage scenes. And so we haven't we haven't really begun to get onto that yet, but I think we're going to see in the in the ensuing chapters how that that kind of downfall begins to begins to happen how things begin to unravel yeah you know, although i will say that you know if people are uh concerned about too much doom and gloom i'd say we have a lot of time left before things get too yeah uh yeah too dark uh and i i'm kind of personally what i'm sort of uh excited about is delving more deeply into the sort of the representation of of poetry and play and gaming uh that occurs in the in the new garden that's going to be installed because uh, I, I think that i really think I, I wonder if in our modern times we've forgotten we, we we play games you know but i mean especially now because of the pandemic we're like we do so at a distance it's mediated by technology uh, and we're going to see a lot of sort of like like one-to-one -one interaction uh, and, and a clever wordplay, but also using, you know, poetry to express personalities and uh, to interact and to, and to develop as characters. And so I think it's like a kind of a, the cliche term is like a prefigurative uh, component to gaming that I think is going to be f very prominently featured in the novel. And I'm really looking forward to um, kind of the positive aspects, not simply, you know, I I, I, I kind of know what's going to happen, you know, uh, and I, I'm i aware that the, the novel itself is fated to proceed in a certain, in a certain way, uh, but I don't want the end to define the, uh, you know, the progress toward that end, even if it's... If that makes sense. Yeah, uh, you're right. It's not all doom and gloom. And it isn't just um, things just get worse, the novel. You right. know, it's, it's, um, there's a lot of things that are going to happen 
and many of them are you know quite unexpected um especially because in the beginning uh there's a sense that uh the author in his own voice is he's he's telling this story for a purpose and it's not simply to um you know because he's he's old and he's impoverished and he's nothing else to do but have these memories there's a sense that uh like preserving these characters in a literary form gives them a kind of immortality that they weren't able to achieve in real life mm-hmm. or the you know the the actual um experiences that that these characters were were based upon you know they there's a kind of value in them of themselves and so it's kind of this idea of like using the literary form to to redeem and to select and to filter and so i i think it's pretty interesting um we discussed also the issues of the the class dynamics of the society um yeah absolutely you know the the dynamics between the members of the family and the servants between the servants themselves because there are you know there are different ranks of servants you know different servants receive different treatment from the family um but also between members of the household and Mm -hmm. people outside of the household you know society at large um and so i guess we saw the contrast of several of those parts in the in the section with Granny Leo when she comes to ask for money. So we see the view of the the poor outsider, the poor peasant seeing the rich noble family. You know, the there's there's a kind of different status between the two different se- servants there. On the one hand, Patience Pingar, who is so kind of well treated that she could be mistaken for a member mm-hmm. of the family. Um and Joel Ray's wife on the other, who who's a relatively low status among the servants that's one of the parts of the novel that i do find very interesting is seeing how the those social differences play out i guess there's there's a there's a bit later in the story where we talk about how um they're saying you know that the jar family are very well known for for not mistreating for their servants for for treating their servants very well and it's i don't know it's funny to me because you think yes and that's good and all but at the end of the day they are still servants, you know, and, and I suppose that's just the society of the time. Or the society of our time. I mean, how many people, you know, like, <laughs> it's like the question of whether you tip well or not. It's the same ambiguous sort of, uh, like... Uh, I suppose, like, in, 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 in many societies, it's it would be rather gauche to actually have servants, but many of the same work that servants would have done is just offloaded onto others who experienced i suppose the same precariousness and the same comparatively inferior status uh so a lot of this is very recognizable um at the same time that this a a lot of it is you know it's it's kind of a a crash course in Qing dynastic uh society or i guess the upper echelons of uh Qing dynastic society. It's really um, eye-opening in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and it's really, I think it's great just to let the um, the luscious descriptions 
uh, sort of just pass by and, and just sort of appreciate the the shimmer and the glimmer uh, of it all. Um, there's a certain pleasure in that. Uh, at the same time, that you can also have a critical eye for, um, you know, the the toil and turmoil upon which this these um, this artifice is erected. Yeah, it's like a as a sociological or anthropological study of just the society of the time and the the lifestyles of the rich and the famous. It's um, it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, In many ways, it's unparalleled. If you want to get down to it, I've been thinking about it. I mean, you can get a lot of information from official records and from archaeological. Uh, documents and from maybe letters that have been preserved in various capacities but like in terms of uh, like a high resolution picture of this of this world you really can't find it anywhere else so even if you like even if one were to completely hate this story which I think would be uh, misguided there's still just so much material here uh, that, you know, I guess it's important to recognize, uh, you know, the, the value and how rare it is to um, to get this, you know, this like time travel device. So, yeah, exactly. Such a kind of richly drawn portrait of, of a society at the time. Have you been have you been surprised at all about the language? So we've been working through uh, both the the david hawks translation we probably should have said that at the beginning people occasionally <laughs> ask me and so uh the the probably the best english language translation full english language translation is the david hawks uh dream of the red chamber or does, does he is it story of the stone he calls it the story of the stone okay Jeez. um but we've also been working through the the chinese original um and so we, we've both read Chinese language materials uh, and we've studied Chinese in school and, and you live in Hong Kong and, and I've lived in Beijing in the past. Um, but uh, I, I think this has been a really like uh, one of my more sustained uh, sort of treatments of, of like a primary source. Um, and so I've been, I've been surprised at times that the language is so recognizable while also there's all kinds of you know i think expressions that are new to me and probably i'm sure are new to you and Mm. what what do you think about that i think that's true some of it as you say is very recognizable some of it is very identifiably chinese of the 18th century and as such is not familiar at all and quite hard work um this uh i think at the time the novel was unusual because it's written mostly in vernacular rather than classical um so the way that it's written is much more similar to the way that people actually speak rather than being this highly um literary uh very kind of terse classical um form of 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 chinese that a lot of literature had been written in um prior to this and so i think that does make it more accessible um um and more readable um but it's still it's still quite you know it's still hard work to 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 get through um 
it's a it's a satisfying challenge though i think you know i've really been getting into the the poetry and so before i would say before working on this material uh i i guess poetry is more adjacent to my like literary and academic uh pursuits but i've sort of been like drawn into uh this poetic space and and you know it's all uh, the poetry in this work is heavily rooted in the like the earlier the the tang dynastic traditions and so it's to really get to really appreciate it, you have to go back and you have to read your Li Bai and your uh, Du Fu, and and you have to really kind of uh, appreciate all these references. And it's but it's it's actually like a lot of fun. Um, and it, yeah, you're, you're right to note that it's it's rooted in these earlier sources. One of the things that does actually shine through is how filled with uh, allusion to not just you know Tang dynasty poetry but uh, i guess literary and, and historical sources of of all different ages mm. all different eras of, of chinese history this novel is filled with those kind of mm. illusions so you know uh, you, you do get an impression of how kind of erudite um <laughs> the author was um but but I agree, yeah. Getting into the getting into the poetry is very interesting, um, and being able to engage with the original language text is it's kind of irreplaceable. You know, the, I don't think it's impossible. Uh, I don't think it's possible really to engage with the novel in the same way if you were to only work in the in translation. You know, as as good as Hawkes' translation is, and you know, we, we often, I suppose, critique elements of it, but I, I do want to be clear that it's a, mm-hmm. you know, an incredibly impressive translation. And basically a, a lifelong pursuit. It took him, you know, several decades, I believe, to produce the work. He even retired early in order to, uh, and to dedicate more time uh, toward well, and indeed, it was I think his son-in-law that finished the uh, the job, uh, John Minford, um, who mm-hmm. actually completed the I think the final volume or final right. two volumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but as good as the translation is, um, it's so important to engage with the the original because so much does get lost in translation, unavoidably. And you know we mentioned earlier the mm-hmm. the homophony on the names. This is something which is I I really can't think of a feasible way to translate accurately, um, and and you know losing that understanding of the the way in which there yeah. are these kind of similar sounding characters, and with that a kind of hidden encoded meaning, um, it's I guess yeah so so important to 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 know to understand and you only really get that from engaging with the Chinese text. I'm hoping that's you know. Uh... For readers who don't speak Chinese, hopefully, you know, what we're doing in this podcast is, is let's say, a sufficient supplement, right? Because you, you're not going to get all of this from, unfortunately, the Hawks, I almost wish he would give, he had given more footnotes. Because um, even, you know, even with our access to the original, it's not always clear uh, the decisions he's making 
or, or the, the the reasoning behind those decisions. Um, although you can understand though, because even without footnotes, it's yeah. already uh, basically like thousands of pages long, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's probably about two and a half so, thousand pages. But even um, then, sometimes you really want to know a little bit more. Um, but hopefully, yeah, uh, you know the we've been pleasantly surprised about uh, l- listenership, um, and, and I wonder if this is part of the uh, part of the appeal of what we're doing. That you know, it, we are kind of a bridge for people who haven't studied Chinese or who are just beginning to. Um, at the same time, that I, yeah. I think there's other some of our listeners might be coming from the other direction, and maybe they're more familiar with. Um, Maybe they're you know like native language is Chinese and they're interested in hearing uh, what uh, like, uh, like Western uh, audiences are are thinking about. Hopefully, it's a little bit of both, right? So, anything? What else should we end it there? Or yeah, I don't think I have anything. I think I have nothing else to add. I think we can probably probably wrap it up there. This has been another. This has been a special kind of review installation of rereading the stone. Um, so as always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, check us out 